you've never spoken to me for two years on campus. Now you're calling me out on McDonald's and you're buying me a Big Mac and you're offering me this product that would make me so much money in a couple of years' time. I, 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 I need to think about it before I actually sign on the dotted line. It may be the most expensive McDonald's meal that you've ever had in your whole life, you know? You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi guys and welcome back to the BFF Podcast. So today we have a very interesting episode, not just because of the topic, but because we have two very exciting people in the room today. We have Christopher Ung, who is our favourite personal finance troll. Dr. Wealth Coach and a man behind the Early Retirement Masterclass. Hey, hi everybody. And we also have Christopher Tan, who is the founder and CEO of Provident, the first fee-only wealth advisory firm in Singapore. Hi everyone. So we have like the two Chris's in the house, who I guess, you know, you guys are also very good friends. Oh, well, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Tan, but of course he's CEO, so I obviously... You know, What's that? Um, Why CEO cannot be a friend? Can be friend, <laughs> la, but it's not like I'll call you out for coffee when I feel angst, you know? You can. Yeah. You can. Okay, thank you. Thank now you, you know that. When that I feel you angst can. about the... Industry. The commission-based industry, uh, I want to emphasize, right? So, <laughs> so in the presence of Chris Tan, when I talk about commission financial advisors, I'm referring to a different kind of advisor than he is. Yeah, I think that's very important. Well, we know that Chris Tan is a very nice person. You guys can call me anytime. But anyway, that decision between DIY investing versus engaging a financial advisor, because, you know, Chris Tan being at Provident, you know, a lot of it is, you know, he brings across the benefits of having a wealth manager. But for Chris Ng, your approach maybe will be slightly different. But, you know, we'll discuss this over, over today's talk. But I want to just put across some data from Accenture's latest Future of Wealth Management report that was released on 6 June, which surveyed 501 investors and 77 financial advisors in Singapore in Q1 2022. And they found that two-thirds of investors still want advisory services from their wealth firm rather than take a DIY approach where they make investment decisions and they just use the wealth firms to execute their trades. So let's look at the case for wealth management services, right? Professional financial advisors may argue that DIY investors, which you know would include many retail individual investors, might sell at the wrong time, for example, or even start investing with a portfolio that is poorly suited for them. And this is especially so given the current market that we're seeing, not just in crypto, but in just even with equity market, right? Where a lot of people are, let's say, swayed by even what Elon Musk is tweeting about, right? With regards to the Twitter deal. You know, for a retail investor, maybe who is just like operating on a very DIY basis, you really don't know like what kind of emotions are driving their decisions. So what's your take on it? Because, you know, the first benefit that I see, you know, professional wealth advisors bring is basically being able to guard against emotion-led decisions? I guess it depends on the kind of FA that you are engaging. I mean, everybody can call themselves an FA as long as they have a license, right? I mean, nowadays there are different kind of names, uh, financial planners, financial consultant, financial services consultant, wealth advisors. 
but I think even for us, and so I don't want to sound too arrogant, I want to include myself, right? Even for us as an industry, I don't think many of us understand what giving advice really means, right? It's not just about investment. It is not just about insurance. Neither is it about just estate planning, you know, uh, all that. An advisor is really a generalist. The role of an advisor is to understand and have a very deep understanding on who the client is. And I'm not talking about just financial need analysis. I'm talking about understanding the client's background, personality, values towards money, significant events in life, aspirations, purpose, life goals. Having a deep understanding on all these things, yes, including the financial aspect, designing a plan that is aligned to the values, the aspirations. And after the plan has been designed, arranging the various aspects of a person's financial life to achieve that plan. And that can include investments, insurance, estate, tax, all sorts. These people are really the specialists. I mean, I cannot accept the fact that advisors call themselves investment specialists, insurance specialists. You cannot be a specialist in so many areas. It is impossible to give advice as an individual. Impossible. I mean, how can an advisor be an expert in insurance, investment, estate, will, and then need to develop business to be MDR, TCOT, TOT, and then service the client, and then do research all the time? I mean, it's just practically impossible to do that. But if you, I mean, come back to your question, if you do get an advisor, and I don't mean as an individual, but as a firm that can do these things very well, Yes, then it is worth you paying the advice. Otherwise, yeah, you might as well just do it yourself if you're not getting that value from your advisor. I think the main crux of the matter is that we are talking about financial advice and DIY investing is that there is inherently no conflict between DIY and financial advice. If we follow Chris Tan's definition of financial advice, uh, the work is a generalist work. And so it is impossible for a layman to basically hold on to a day job and to be able to master the intricacies of, for example, tax planning and estate planning at the mm. same time. So so definitely, I don't see a conflict. Now, where I see DIY coming in and being useful is that you can become good at maybe one area of investing, right? So, for example, I'm, I'm very active in the FIRE movement and we teach people how to build portfolios that generate passive income on a regular mm. basis. Now, that can be adequately handled by one person. But if you really look really deeply at the kind of people that sign up for investment classes, you do a psychographic analysis. They almost all overwhelmingly belong to the TJ kind of spectrum for the Myers and Briggs type indicator. So they're basically thinkers and they are very judgmental, right? And, and this is about 99% of the classes I conduct have a TJ kind of mentality. And, and that's a very small part of the population, mm. right? Um, most of them are engineers, they are accountants, but they are very numerate. And I have uh, maybe one or two people who might be poets, who might be athletes and all that. They'll be interested and they'll be able to get somewhere. But generally, I'm pretty sure Provident and my course, we can easily coexist. And, and in fact, we can reinforce each other. Mm. Yeah, I, I think what's important is to understand that there are some aspects of your life where uh, you need a generalist and, and you need a lot of advisors like one on tax planning to actually support you. Mm. All right, But mm. in other areas where, for example, you're young, you you're very unhappy at work. You, you want to get out of the rat race and you want to figure out how to get passive income and you're prepared to do that for the next eight to 10 years. Mm. Then a DIY course would be right for you and I don't see it being mutually exclusive mm. at all. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are areas that you may have time and interest <laughs> for. In fact, uh, I mean, we have we were just having this little conversation before this podcast, right? That actually it is mutually supporting. Right. Someone who has gone for training, DIY, really understand investment will make my job a lot easier to manage so-called the emotions, right? Rather than someone that is totally untrained, I have to start from the beginning explaining what is investing, what is not investing and all that. And well, I think that as advisors, we need to accept that sometimes the client that we have know more than you. I think it's perfectly fine. I mean, I've met so many clients who are so investment savvy and when they come to me, they obviously know a lot more than me in other areas of investing. And then I ask them, okay, so what, I mean, what make you come to us? What can we do for you since you are actually so savvy? And the reason he gave is, oh, I just want some sense check, you know, to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And yeah, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, I, I agree that I can coexist, but I'm just looking at the stats, right? I, I think that's another interesting data point that I'll talk about later. So based on the survey by St. James Place Wealth Management Asia, they said that 56% of Singaporeans ranked financial advisors as their top source of financial advice which marked a shift in the investment advice sentiment that was traditionally dominated by preference to family. So family ranks second and continues to be one of the major sources of financial advice for Singaporeans at 38%. This was followed up by financial advice books, 25%, investment seminars, 16%, and then the media, 14%. I was looking at this data, right, and that split because this was actually based on a study a year ago. Because in reality, what we are seeing is a lot of investment advice is actually taken from Reddit forums or even from TikTok. You know, just looking at the numbers, like what do you do? You guys think that you know that's a fair representation of what we're seeing today, or you see something that's different? I'm surprised, lah. I'm just pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and well, I mean, if that's real, it's good news for my industry. But I'm not being skeptical. But it's just that, firstly, this is done by an FA firm, so it will definitely be biased. Right, <laughs> that's yeah. one. Right. Secondly, I'm not sure whether uh, it is because the last few years has been easy years for the markets. Right. It's easy to give advice in a market like this. Buy anything, you make some money. Right. I'm not sure if next year when we do this survey all over again, and this year it seems like it's going to be a very tough year, mm -hmm. the result will be the same. <laughs> right. It's just like after 2008, everybody was cursing. I mean, were cursing the banks, you know, and uh, all that. Right. Because they lost money. So last five years, six years, there's been easy years to be a financial advisor, really. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just my, that's just my take. Yeah. And, and I, I think we'll hold that thought in mind because I wanted to get back onto the reviews on, let's say, the FAs. But then, Chris, what is your take on this? My take is very simple, right? You just need to apply this mental model. There is actually a conflict of interest. If you're talking about getting something from a salesperson, then the person is incentivized to generate commission from sales. And as you pay these commissions, there is a direct conflict between your objective of basically putting money aside for retirement. And so there is a conflict of interest between a commission-based financial advisor versus someone who is a DIY investor. However, if you were to switch the commission-based financial advisor into a fee-based financial advisor, a large part of the conflict disappears because that person is based on a fixed salary and the person also has a reputation to stake himself. And, and so I would say that there is much less conflict of interest. So I think uh, with a basic understanding of incentives, right, which I think a basic economics course can give to the Singaporean, right, then, then you'll be able to understand 
where DIY investing and fee-based advice, we stand side by side with each other. And I would say that we have more in common than uh, I would say the rest of the industry. If the survey is conducted in Singapore, I suspect that the 56%, probably only a small amount of it would apply to a fee-based financial advisor because of the sheer numbers of uh, commission-based financial advisors out there. But you also mentioned that you think that the investment seminar numbers are a little bit too high, right? Yeah. The problem with investment seminars is that I think the same issue applies to investment seminars, what Chris is saying for financial advisors. Now, we're heading into an era of rising interest rates, which means that there are a lot of innovative projects, right? They have a higher hurdle, a higher internal rate of return, right? Before venture capitalists would put their money up, before uh, some head office would approve these projects. So you've got to see tech stocks going through a very hard time for the next one to two years. And that's until they stop raising interest rates. And so for the financial advisors, as well as the investment trainers that's been hawking these investment courses on tech, on growth investing, they're all in it together. And the truth is that I think they're all on a sinking ship. Fortunately, I'm, I've always been on the value spectrum. So basically spent 10 years being made fun of, but they're not making fun of us anymore this year. <laughs> We're doing quite okay. I might even say that the tsunami for the investment seminar business, uh, the situation is going to be much worse than financial advice. And it's going to be bad. All right? It's going to be extremely bad for the next one to two years. How about the generational differences as to how people seek investment advice? I mean, from your both your perspectives, because Chris Ng, you know, as we we all know, you know, a lot of like millennials are investing via robot advisory platforms. And we have the stats for this, right? That they said that 15% of Singaporeans leverage robo advisory platforms to invest and grow their funds, while 21% of millennials do so. So there's that skew towards millennials. And this is based on the OCBC Financial Wellness Index 2021 numbers. Yeah. I mean, firstly, yes, it's true that we serve mainly the affluent and it's not because we look down on people with no money. It's just that being a fee firm, the people that will come to us and will need to come to us are really the people whom they have more complicated financial issues to deal with. I mean, if you are young, my son is 24, right? I mean, his focus right now is about buying the next BTO flat or if it's too expensive, buy a resale. His life is really easy, simple. So he doesn't need that kind of advice. What he really needs to do is to know where to invest his money and find the cheapest platform to invest his money. And that's it. So I would say that people who are generally younger, uh, in their 20s or even early 30s, I think you can do a lot more DIY, especially because you are doing sort of what I call segmented planning. But as you age, life becomes complicated. You have got families, you have got children, you have got aged parents, you've got more money, you know, your job becomes more mobile, you've got tax issues, you know, and all these things. Then you probably need someone to try and create a coherent plan for you. You need someone to be able to help you spot your blind spots. You need someone to ask you difficult questions, questions that you will not ask yourself. Questions like, what is most important about money to you? you know, things like that, then you will need advice. So I'll, I'll say, yes, generally, as you get older, you probably will need more and more advice. Yeah. And so again, I have totally no problem with people doing it themselves, especially now. They should. It is the cheaper way to do it. But as they age, then yeah, maybe they will have a need for an advisor. Okay. For me, I think that there is a sort of a discontinuity as your net worth becomes higher, right? If you have less than 100,000 net worth. You will always be thinking 
along the side of uh, maybe getting into the right tech stock, you might not really want to diversify. Uh, you might follow trends on Reddit, which I think is a little bit unhealthy. And a lot of people in this six-digit kind of range stay there forever, right, throughout their lives. Or they could risk losing it all if they put that six-digit into Luna. Yeah, they could, but it's not a lot to lose in the first place, right? And what people really want is to actually have a chance of climbing the totem pole, being wealthier relative to other people, right? For me, I believe wealth is relative. It's not an absolute score. Mm. And, and especially for young men, it's always about this relative wealth, ability to capture money and all that. So, so it's driving young people to take an inordinate amount of risk in crypto, brag about it on Tinder. And basically, it keeps them in this chaotic realm where very enterprising crypto entrepreneurs in places like South Korea can, can soup in and invent a stable coin to, to get your wealth into that hole, right? So I think that it's actually very valuable to start thinking about how wealthy people manage their money. And as you move from the six to the seven digit, and you note that a lot of things change, right? If you have seven digits, who cares about crypto? I buy property, I sit on property for the next 10 to 15 years. That's how rich people think, uh, incidentally, in the 70s and 80s. And, and so how do we get people from this A mindset to this B mindset is... At least in my case, for my own children, I, I intend to give them their legacy while I'm still alive, when they're in their teens, right? So hopefully in their teens, uh, I'm, I'm thinking maybe a quarter million for them to play with when they're 18, to understand the financial markets. And hopefully when they start to work, I might bribe them to study the CFA just to make sure that they're able to think at a higher level, at the asset allocation level, right? And understand how the factors work in investing. How do we get money slowly but surely and have a certain amount of stability so that they basically can think like a rich and a wealthy person so they don't read Reddit, but they might read the real estate articles uh, on the Business Times. Yeah, I think basically that is the challenge. And what I'm seeing from this interview in this panel so far is that if I can succeed to get my kids or my students into this secondary, this second uh, mindset where I've, I have a bigger emphasis on maybe not such high returns, but on lower risk, right? So you have a higher sharp ratio. Remember, a sharp ratio is risk-free returns divided by your standard deviation. So you can get my students to think about lower standard deviation. Then they're able to get to that seven-digit level. And then they can qualify for fee-based advice, which, which I think is fine because the fee-based advice will be very helpful for tax planning, will be very helpful for legacy planning. And tax planning, I've just read this newly published book on tax planning by Talisman Publishing. And my God, one semester is not enough. There are rules like the best time to incorporate a business, I think, is from July to December. And there are various reasons why that is the case, mm. right? To get tax savings. So yeah, so, so that's something which I hope I can give to my own children and my students. And they can then, well, to be able to afford like a, a higher range of services, you know, yeah, to, to help them solve life's uh, greater problems. And just based on, you know, what we were discussing with regards to financial advice being very, very different from financial product advice. And the fact that we're seeing a lot of these FAs being very motivated by the incentives, they want to be COT, TOT, whatever it is. Do you see some of them actually leveling up to actually giving you sound financial advice and really looking at, you know, being a specialist in all the various areas that we mentioned? Or do you still see that that's not something that is the top of their minds? Yeah, I mean, like I said, firstly, I don't think that an advisor can give financial advice on his own. Mm. It's not possible. Do they assemble teams behind them? Yeah, so they might have to. But the problem right now in the industry is that the financial advisory industry is still very, quote-unquote, agency-based, like an insurance agency. Mm. Right, So every agency will have their own way of giving advice. It is not 
institutionalized, mm-hmm. right? So that's one. The question that you are asking is whether I see advisors leveling themselves up. Yes, they do, which is good. Mm-hmm. Okay, but no matter how much they level up their knowledge, they are not a specialist. Mm. They are still a generalist. Now, it's, it's still important. You have a general overall idea of what estate planning, what legacy planning, how, how trust works, you know, how trust works in different jurisdictions, how it's under the common law, not under the civil uh, law and all that. That's very important. You have a general understand how investment work, but you are still not a specialist. An investment specialist is someone that looks at investments, look at the markets, properly trained. He does this full time. <laughs> full time. And you cannot call yourself a specialist if you are just picking unit trusts. You are obviously not a specialist. You are, you, you are probably a more educated salesperson, yes, but you are not a specialist because you are just picking manager. You are not even the manager. <laughs> you have no control over what the manager is going to do with the portfolio, right? If you become then after after becoming an investment specialist, three months later, you go for an insurance course and you become an insurance specialist, right? You are still not an insurance specialist because you don't get it every day, right? And you are definitely not an estate specialist because only a lawyer can say that. And even within the legal fraternity, not all lawyers call themselves an estate specialist, right? Only a selected few will specialize in family wealth, in legacy, you know, and all that. And if you talk about the medical practice, it's even stricter. They have (laughs) sub-specialists, not just specialists, sub-spec, right? I get uncomfortable when people say that they are a specialist. Yeah, because I think we don't understand the depth of knowledge you need to have before uh, you even dare to call yourself a specialist. Chris Ng, so what do you think about, you know, do we talk a lot about, you know, how financial advisors are being perceived, right? I know that you could go on all day about it. I could go on all day, that's right. But can you just give us like maybe a short, like five minutes? Okay, I actually think that Chris Tan has done a better work than me on this department. The only thing I want to say is that we can always go back to first principles, right? When we are analyzing like a relationship between multiple parties. Not only are we talking about conflict of interest between a commission-based financial advisor and a customer, there is also this thing known as an information asymmetry. The person who understands the insurance product knows it a lot more than you do. So whatever it is, you are disadvantaged, right? Yeah, which is why I think that's what DIY investing tries to do. We don't teach a specialist course on, on insurance, but we can rank insurance products based on the kind of commissions that they generate for the salesman. And my students are all trained to be very assertive if they want to, for example, pick up term life insurance because they are warned that it might be resisted by a commission-based financial advisor. Yeah, so so that's what we, we try to do. I think at the end of the day, it does boil down to general education, right? If our education system educates Singaporeans on how to apply the mental models that they have, which we do, right, in economics class, in maths class, if you learn to apply them to the field of personal finance and life in general, well, investment trainers won't exist because you'll be able to... Uh, use these models to sort things out, Hmm. right? What is a moral hazard? What is adverse selection? What is a conflict of interest? Yeah, but unfortunately, there are certain gaps and lacuna in the way we teach our students. And and that's how, like, people like me make a living, right? We we basically take your maths and your economics and we show you how to apply it for making money to get out of the rat race, to solve some of the generalized problems that you have. And I think, essentially, it's not too different, right? Basically, a fee-based financial advisor basically takes it to a whole new level where they say that, okay, you know these mental models, but uh, are you aware that, you know, when you do tax planning, like, uh, using a private limited company can shield you from liability, for example? That's a whole new set of rules, right? Mm. 
I think that's that's very important. But unfortunately, we, we've not done a good job. So when a fresh graduate gets thrown out into the working world, you get all these calls from your pals who used to be with you in the hall of residence. They want to catch you for, for lunch and, and and you fall into this trap. And the moment you sit down, he tries to sell you an investment link policy. And, and you're not just you're not prepared for this. You don't have the mental models to prepare for this, right? You gotta maybe maybe a first class in engineering and somebody throws you an ILP, the first thing is to say no and say, I need to really understand, you know, what's in it for you to sell this to me? And that I, you've never spoken to me for two years on campus. Now you're calling me out on McDonald's and you're buying me a Big Mac and you're offering me this product that would make me so much money in a couple of years' time. I, 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 I need to think about it before I actually sign on the dotted line. It may be the most expensive McDonald's meal that you've ever had in your whole life, you know? I yeah. think that experience a lot of us must be familiar with, right? Yeah, I think exactly. a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Which is why I think that, you know, in even the stats that we quoted earlier on, I think there really needs to be, you know, the, the future surveys, it really needs to also distinguish between the fee-based advisory versus commission-based advisory. Because even when you're looking at the review of, you know, what the perception of, of FAs are, right? We are looking at this huge, broad spectrum. Yeah. Actually, to be more accurate, sorry, I have to come in here. Yes. There are actually three models. Mm. One is commission-based. Mm. And then there is the other extreme, which is fee-only, which is where we are. Yes. And then there's fee-based. So fee-based is quite different from fee-only. Fee yeah, so fee-based means that the advisor charges a fee, but he still takes commission. AUM, right? Uh, not just AUM, not insurance. Okay, okay. Yeah, so when, when say fee-based, there are advisors out there who are fee-based, so they charge a fee and then they may prescribe some, some insurance policies for you, but they keep the insurance commissions. Some fee-based advisor will say, okay, if I'm making 5,000 insurance commissions from you, I waive the fee for advice. Yeah, fee only is no commissions at all, 100% fee. So actually, there are three compensation models. Got it. And in the Singapore ecosystem, we look at the, the split, right, amongst the players. What's the split like for... Are you I don't have... Yeah, player? I mean, most, I would say, like, maybe easily 97, 98% of commission base. Mm. And then you have a uh, number of fee-based individual advisors operating in some of the commission-based firm, mm. right? And then, I mean, from what I know, we are probably the only comprehensive, only fee-only comprehensive wealth advisory firm. But you also mentioned, you know, in our show notes when we were prepping for this, that being a fee-only firm does not make us competent. Yeah, I mean, the only thing we did 20 years ago was that we took away the factor that will create the conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. And that's commission. Yeah, taking away commission simply means that if you're a client, you come to me, you are assured that whatever I tell you has got nothing to do with commissions. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean we are competent yet. It doesn't mean we are experienced yet. Right, you have to come in and experience the work that we do, and judge for yourself whether uh, we are competent. Right, so I'll say in the first year when Providence started, we are definitely independent, but I cannot say that we are competent at that point in time because we are a very new firm. Yeah, but twenty years down the road, I mean, uh, I was just again sharing with uh, Keith right for investment modes right that because we are we are, we have been debating in our firm about what is this value of advice that we give to our clients. What is this secret sauce, you know, right? Because in its form, all financial advisors seem to do the same thing. But the secret sauce, the value is really our experience. We have gone through 20 years of experience, different financial markets, the biggest being 2008. We have worked with different instruments and that experience actually caused us to now know actually what works, what will not work. 
And that experience in our firm is expressed through our philosophy. I'll give an example, right? So venture capital or PE funds, do they work? Well, evidence shows that venture capital actually beat the S&P 500. But in what time frame? Because that's time the world frame. that I came from. Yes. Mm. Time frame, that's one thing. Mm. But the other thing is, can you even gain access to those venture capitalists yeah, that can... No, beat, you can't. Right? It's very difficult. Yeah, right? you you, can't. Not everybody can be an investor in Sequoia Capital for whatever, right? Yes. Right? So... So we have gone through that journey. And I, I mean, I just want to add, because because I come from the VC world, right? And even in the VC world, the Sequoias and, you know, like, uh, Anderson Horowitz of the world, mm. there's a huge spectrum in terms of like venture yeah. funds as well, in yeah. terms of the performance. And yeah. usually if you look at the performance, the companies that get the best deals are always the ones at the top. So if you talk to the LPs who have invested in, you know, a venture capital shop that, you know, maybe has maybe like two twenty million million funds, and if you look at the returns of that. Yeah, even at the PB level, at the private bank level, you might not get access to some of these yeah. best VC or PE funds, right? Yes. Yeah, so that takes many years of experience to learn. And so my point really here is, being fee-only doesn't mean we are competent. Being fee-only doesn't uh, mean that, you know, you will get good advice. It just simply means that we mitigate one big factor that causes conflict of interest. Yeah, uh, it takes experience. It takes years of experience before one can actually call themselves to be competent and, exp- and, and, and skillful to give good advice. Yes. I think what would be, I guess, tailwinds for this is also that if there is that shift in consumer mindset, right? If people on the road today are saying that, you know, if I look at this entire spectrum of FAs, I want to speak to somebody who is really thinking in my shoes. And then more people are saying that, you know, I want fee-only advice. Then that would change the market. I totally, I mean, you, you, you said something that I wrote many years ago, probably 15 years ago on Business Times. I didn't I, read it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you, you write? You have a lot of material on the Business Times. Yes, but I wrote something like yeah. that. I said, this is what, it's very sad, but this is one industry that the consumers must tell us what to do. It's very sad. <laughs> But this is an industry whereby the consumer must tell the quote-unquote professional yeah. what to do. They go for classes like what uh, Chris is, has conducted. They need to go and tell their advisor, I want term. Yes, and that's what I teach them to do. Right? I can only graduate 10 to 15 every three months. Yeah, but the point is that yeah. you have to teach consumer to tell the professionals what to do. Yes, yes, right? I do. I do. So I, I, it's I, very I, sad, I, but it has to be ground up. It's not easy to be top-down, as I mentioned. I can understand why MAS didn't go that way. The lobbying was just too strong, right? So if top-down doesn't work, then you need a bottom-up. More people... That's why I'm, I, I don't fight education. I don't fight DIY because it's good. More and more people get educated. They put the pressure on the industry. I don't think I will see it in my generation. I think maybe yeah. the uh, second or third generation, maybe that will change. Uh, I mean, Australia and UK is so far ahead of us. And uh, UK only changed the uh, legislation like less than 10 years ago. They have this RDR and they change it, mm. right? So it will not, in my ge- will not be in my generation. Mm. Maybe you have to leave it to Chris Ng to try to like nah, lobby people to I'm, I'm, I'm a drop in the ocean. Only. Right, I can, I can tell you that it has to begin in our classrooms. Mm. Yes, yeah. I agree. In fact, I would say that if you really want this to work, you need to teach economics at the O-levels, which is which we don't have at the moment, right? 
And that section of microeconomics to understand all these things like a conflict of interest, adverse selection needs to be applied to the financial planning industry. I mean, in the secondary school textbooks, that's the way to get these ideas out to a large number of people. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, censor it. Yeah, yeah, you can't rely on money sense. I can tell you, money sense is good. Um, It it covers the adult population. You really need to get them when they're 16 years Mm. old. Yeah, before GAC. I'm going to make use of this podcast to say this. Now, if you're an advisor listening to this, don't be angry with both the Chris's. Don't be angry with us. And the reason why I say that is that I do not know whether you realize that you are not just managing monies. You are actually managing the dreams and the aspiration of many people. You, you need to know that if you sell something that you are not even convicted yourself, you're not sure whether it's good enough for your clients, or worse still, you know it's not so good and you sell it to your clients. I do not know whether 20 years later, when they cannot retire, when their kids cannot go to school, you are able to see them eye to eye. Yeah, I, I'm very emotional when I talk about this because I feel that we don't understand this. We just think that it is a good career to make money very, very fast. We take it too lightly. But these are the hard-earned money of people, 20, 30 years, and they trust you. Don't let them down. You know, so if you're an advisor, don't be upset with us. We are just telling you that we need to do our job better because many lives depend on you. You're very right. You know, with that, and to add on to what Chris Ng said, right, it's not just about educating people about money when you're young, but it's also about educating people about moral values because this is exactly what you said, right? When somebody is selling a product, are they really thinking about the consequences later on, right? And this is a much bigger topic that's not just about money, but it is actually inherently ingrained, right? Because when that first sale happens, when you put money into that product and what you're liable to pay and, you know, do people actually know what they're paying for and do the advisors actually care for the person that they're selling to? Because a lot of times, you know, going back to the whole McDonald's story, when that first product is being sold, it's like, hey, bro, I know you, no worries, I trust you, come, let me support you. And Mm -hmm. that is how that first transaction is done. Yep. And I can tell you that based on my industry sources, that the companies are really smart. They're targeting the really popular guys in the JCRCs. And the local halls of residences, these are thought leaders of their generation. And they're converting all of them into uh, commission salespeople. And these people might not know any better. For example, right, you, you might be a history major, suddenly you're selling investment products, making two hundred to 300000 a year, you know, and thinking that you're helping all your friends. Mm. Yeah, I really don't think it's so much of a moral issue. It's mm. it's really about education, understanding what, when you buy something, there's always uh, a value chain. You know, it's always like commissions. Yeah, and fans listening to this, don't don't hate Christopher Tan, but you can hate Christopher because I'm a troll. <laughs> and I suggested this panel. I was the one who wanted Christopher Tan uh, in the same room because I'm such a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. But if you are yeah. a commission-based agent, not doing very well, doing the right thing. Congratulations, good job. Yeah, I think and I think that's a good note to end off today's podcast because I think we we talked a lot about, you know, the 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 understanding behind DIY investing and you know getting a wealth manager. And these are not two opposing concepts as we've concluded in today's podcast. But I think we actually got a lot of like good material with, you know, the three things that you mentioned, commission based, fee based, and also fee only, and also helping the average person understand how best to navigate all this. 
So thank you the two Chris's for being on the show. So thank you so much. For all the listeners out there, please do not hate any of us because everybody is coming here with good intent to educate and to explore more on the issues of, you know, how do we go about um, you know, managing our personal finances, right? So with that, thank you so much Chris Ong and Chris Tan thank for you. being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at nelisten.sg or at my Instagram at MissFitFi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Skate Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time. <laughs>